are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share His love. Luke 14, verse 28 through 33. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, This person began to build and wasn't able to finish Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up Everything you have cannot be my disciples. Thank you, Carol. Well, it has been a full week of news and events. And maybe you have felt yourself this week a little inundated with information, agitated perhaps. Maybe you come into worship this afternoon just feeling restless. Maybe it's been an anxious kind of week. Maybe you've had to tell yourself to stop checking the news or to put your phone down. I certainly did. And I was so grateful throughout this week just to set that stuff down and see that this book is here waiting to give me rest from all of these things. That God was waiting to speak life and peace into my life right from the mouth of God that we can open these pages and hear a different perspective, a higher perspective than the one that we hear down here. And how good is it that our lives get to be anchored in God's Word? So grateful for that this week. And also the unusual grace of 75 degrees in November. The weather was amazing. It just felt like a little gift into this week. And I don't know about you, but this was a chance to run around the yard and do all of the things that got ambushed by snow in October. That were still there. Garden hoses and leaves and last minute lawn mowings. Some of us, I'm sure, were scurrying around like little field mice getting ready for winter this week. And you might have, what, a day or two more and then it looks like it's over. But it almost wasn't a chore this week to be outside and to do those things. I saw a neighbor. I could not actually hear him, but he sure looked like he was whistling to himself as he was putting up Christmas lights in a t-shirt. That's how good it was this week. Well, we have the scripture passage before us. We have a passage today about finishing what we've started. A passage about counting the cost and then carrying it to completion. And I bet every one of us knows the sense of these two different scenarios and exactly how it feels. On the one hand, when you have completed a project and you have that sense of accomplishment. And then there's the other scenario where you've got a project about half done, and then for one reason or another, life gets in the way, and it just sits there staring at you for days, weeks, longer, just begging to be finished. Some of us are trying to teach our children those lessons right now, and it can be an uphill battle. So you might say, hey, you need to finish cleaning your room. It's a pigsty. Doesn't that bother you? 
To which they say, "Mm, no. (laughs) Lennox said I could share this story. I asked his permission. I said to him the other day, I said, Lennox, I think you're due for a shower. Why don't you go take a shower? And he says to me, but dad, I took a shower last week. (laughs) Apparently he's on this every other week shower schedule now. We wouldn't want to overdo it. Well, we all know the reality of unfinished business, of having started something but not finished it yet, good intentions, but then real-life distractions or other commitments and priorities just get in the way. These are the things that characterize our Scripture passage today. But instead of to-do lists around the house or chores, the nature of the matter before us is following Jesus. This is in the context of discipleship. We're in the last couple of weeks in our message series this fall called The Doctor is In, Discipleship in Luke. And all fall we've been studying these passages in Luke that are unique to Luke's gospel among the four. And each of the gospels will have these little passages or moments that from that eyewitness account, this part of the story is captured for us. And so here we are with these two pictures of building a tower and a king going to war that are included only in Luke. But before we get there, I'd like to start out studying this passage by widening the context just a little bit and including some of the verses right beforehand. These verses are not unique to Luke. They're picked up elsewhere, but they're so vital in us really understanding the picture of the tower and the king. So back up with me to verse 25. So this is before Carol picked up the reading where the narrative of this passage begins. And it says there, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. So Jesus is on a journey on foot that will ultimately lead him south to Jerusalem, where he'll be arrested, tried, and hung on a cross. And on this journey, it starts really rather small with Jesus calling some of his first disciples as they're cleaning their fishing nets on the seashore. And then along the way, he calls a few more. One of them is a tax collector in his tax booth, Matthew. And he calls him to follow him. Pretty soon, we see Jesus traveling around with what we call his 12 disciples. But it doesn't stop there. As Jesus speaks and heals and travels, there are more and more people who are traveling with him. And by now, in Luke 14, it says these are large crowds. There's this whole movement that has started, this traveling Jesus movement with masses of people parading along with him. And yet what he says next is hardly the thing that you would expect of someone who is trying to gain a following. It says large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Another reason I wanted to start here in our study is that some might have thought that I intentionally skipped this part because it's hard. And at first blush, it is a hard saying of Jesus. I have not ever seen this verse in calligraphy on a greeting card. I hope that when we run into passages like this, we've studied some of these before at the Y Church, that as we run into these, and I'm speaking from my own experience, that we would neither rush to judgment, nor gloss over them real quick, nor take offense, nor miss the opportunity to dig deeper. 
So for me, I do two things. First, I ask the Lord to help me understand. And then second, I go and ask somebody else who is further down the road, who knows a little bit more than I do. And sometimes that's in person. Sometimes it might be in a trustworthy book or article. I have folks in my life who I care for deeply, friends, who can make all kinds of dismissive claims about the Bible. Though, listen to this, they have not really actually ever read it or put in the time. But personally, I have never been failed by this, that all Scripture, yes, even this, Luke 14, 26, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, even when I don't understand it at first. So what's Jesus saying here when he tells his followers that they have to hate their moms and dads and spouses and kids and siblings? You have to ask yourself if some of this crowd was also there in Luke 6, When Jesus had said, love your enemies. It's a very peculiar message indeed if he's telling us to love our enemies but hate our families. So what is Jesus saying? Well, what he's not talking about is an actual hatred of loved ones. Maybe you knew that, you sensed that, maybe you were wondering what he means or you just glossed over this uncomfortable passage in the past. But you can definitely rule that out. That is not what he's saying. And so if you're looking for a verse to get out of dealing with your relatives, you're going to have to keep looking. It's not this one. What Jesus is really talking about here is what you and I love the most. He is talking about your first love, your greatest affection, your ultimate priority. One of my favorite things to do in life is to play sports. Just about any game out there, and I am in. So playing pickup basketball in this very gym at the Y, I love to do that. Even better, playing softball on our church team in the city league, I have just so enjoyed that this summer. We had a great season and finished third in the Elk River City League after a lengthy snow delay in October. We finally finished the season on Tuesday night. It was a great season and a great group of guys. Another thing I love is playing football with the kids here at church. And sometimes I have to remind myself that, no, first we have to clean up before I can then go and toss the football with the kids. But if you want to see me like a kid in a candy shop, screaming my head off, having the time of my life, it is hands down playing boot hockey. Some of my boot hockey friends are here. 8 o'clock, Saturday mornings, down at the hanky pit, stick on the ice. I absolutely love it. In fact, I love it so much that it makes all those other things just pale in comparison to my love for hockey. Do you understand what Jesus is saying in this passage? There are large crowds following him. They're following him because they're curious, because it's the popular thing to do, because they like some of the things that he has to say, because they love the miracles, because they like his agenda, at least what they think that it will be. And Jesus whirls on his heel and he says to the crowd, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his family member or his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And I imagine these words put a chill through the crowd. Jesus puts it in such jarring terms, doesn't he? 
And you have to keep in mind, I mean, this is jarring for us, but he's speaking in the context of a strong group culture where the family group, that network, was everything about who you were. You lived and died by the honor of your family. So when little kids are growing up, in their culture, they never ask, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? No, the question they asked was, who is your family? We live in an individualistic culture. They lived in a collective one where the family network was the ultimate value. So Jesus turns to the crowd following him and he says to them essentially, if your relationship with me is not your ultimate value, if it is not your first love and your greatest affection, then you cannot be my disciple. And then if that wasn't strong enough, he adds verse 27 and he says, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple." The crowds who Jesus said this to knew exactly what kind of picture this was. Their Roman rulers had perfected crucifixion as a method of execution, even extracting social humiliation in the process. So if a person was to be crucified, the Romans gave them the horizontal beam for their cross that they would carry through the town to their death. Jesus equates following him with carrying a cross. As one old commentary put it, following Jesus is no invitation to an ice cream social. And it is these sobering words that lead us into the picture of the tower and the king. The first picture Jesus gives is of someone who wants to build a tower. You and I maybe wouldn't exactly track with that, but they would build watchtowers like as a protection over a vineyard or uh, along the wall around their home. I have been in a couple places in the world where ordinary homes are actually surrounded by walls with barbed wire and there's gates and guardsmen posted outside of normal residential homes. That's the picture here. There's someone who wants to build a tower for their property. Maybe in our context, you got to think about you want to build a pole building or a new addition at your house. That's the context. And Jesus says, won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? This is what he's inviting the crowd to do. He's saying, sit down and estimate the cost of discipleship, the cross-bearing, the priority setting, the finishing. And he's saying, first reflect on what this commitment looks like and what it'll take to see it through. Because you don't want to be the guy with a half-built pole barn in his backyard. You don't want to be the person with a new addition that's at a standstill because you didn't do the math on the materials. Jesus is saying, don't lay a foundation that you're not able to finish. He does not desire these large crowds of curious onlookers and fair-weather followers. He desires committed disciples. People who have counted the cost and by God's grace are ready to bear their cross on the way to Jerusalem. The decision to follow Christ is one that demands sober reflection and then firm commitment. Jesus says, otherwise you won't make it. When I meet with a couple for premarital sessions, one of the things that you want to hear them saying in their own words, but essentially is this, we have discerned this together before God 
and we're ready to commit to one another for life. Because that's what they're going to do in their marriage ceremony. They're going to say, till death do us part. We have thought it through, and we are ready to finish what we've started. And even Elvis Presley knew this intuitively when he said, I wonder if you can finish the song, Wise men say, only fools rush in. You could probably forget the rest of the song for any relevant lessons, but at least that line. So picture number one is about coming to Christ and counting the cost. Picture number two is about following after Christ and submitting everything else. That's the picture of the king going to war. Jesus says, suppose there's a king and he's going to war against another king. But the first king has only 10,000 troops, whereas his opponent has 20,000. Jesus says to them, don't you think he's going to first sit down and consider the odds? And if he does his math properly, don't you think he'll send out the diplomats and secure a treaty instead? That sounds like a wise king to me. He's not going to send his men against an army he knows they can't defeat to start a war that they can't win. No, they might as well surrender their cause and make peace. And then comes the punchline in verse 33. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. You see, commitment to Jesus calls for everything. A footnote in my study Bible this week said this, the essence of being a disciple of Christ is unreserved commitment to him, holding loosely the things of this world. You see, the picture of the tower is about counting the cost. The picture of the king is about surrendering everything else that would get in the way. And Jesus calls for everything. William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army way back in 1865, a long time ago now. And you and I are going to probably have to think outside of, we hear Salvation Army, you know, you picture the second-hand store that's on the other side of town. So we have to think outside of that to really understand the true nature of the Salvation Army. It started in London, similar to the YMCA, where William Booth left traditional church ministry and took the gospel directly to the poor in the city, to the homeless, to the hungry, to the destitute. And he and his wife, Catherine, would walk the streets of urban London taking care of people's physical needs And then telling them about Jesus. That was their philosophy of ministry. And God was on the move. People of all kinds of backgrounds were receiving the gospel and being transformed by Christ. Prostitutes and addicts and street criminals and drunks. And then they would join William and Catherine out there on the streets singing and telling people their testimony and what Jesus had done in their life. By the 10 year mark, William Booth had over a thousand volunteers and evangelists. By the 15-year mark, hundreds of thousands of people were turning to Christ across the British Isles. By the 20-year mark, the Salvation Army had spread to the rest of Europe, to our country, to Canada, to Australia, India, and South Africa. And today, the Salvation Army exists in over a hundred countries, sharing the hope and healing that is found in Jesus. William Booth was asked by a reporter later on in his life. The reporter said, Mr. Booth, tell me the secret of your success. 
What is the secret behind the Salvation Army? To which Booth said this, I will tell you the secret. God has had all of me. He went on to say to the reporter, There have been men with greater brains than I, men with greater opportunities. But from the day I got the poor of London on my heart and caught a vision of all Jesus Christ could do with them, on that day I made up my mind that God would have all of William Booth there was. And if there is anything of power in the Salvation Army today, it is because God has had all the adoration of my heart, all the power of my will, and all the influence of my life. I want you to imagine that you're on the road with Jesus, with these large crowds, and he has turned to ask you these questions. He says to you, have you sat down to count the cost? Are you ready to carry your cross? And are you ready to surrender everything? It's a hard message, isn't it? We thought we dealt with the hard part at the beginning. (laughs) The whole thing's hard. Because it's so total and so complete, the cost of discipleship. You cannot give your life to Christ and yet parcel out a few square inches where you still get to be king. That's not what he offers to us. You cannot stack Christ alongside the other priorities of your life and call it good. No, everything else must be set down. Right before we get to this passage, one we didn't study in this series is the parable of the great banquet. And Jesus tells a story there of a man who's preparing a banquet and sending out invitations. You and I know this. You've had dinner parties, you've had guests over, birthday parties, and you send out invitations. But when the guests start receiving those invitations, they start in the parable coming up with excuses about why they couldn't attend. The first one says, well, I just bought a piece of property and I've got to go inspect it. The second one says, well, I just bought a bunch of oxen and I really need to go give them a test drive out in the field. The third one says, I just got married and so the timing just really isn't great. You see the connection to our passage now? They appreciated the invitation. And under other circumstances, they certainly would have come. But they just had these other priorities to tend to. My brothers and sisters, what is getting in the way of your commitment to Christ? What competing priorities are you holding on to? I think the people in that large crowd that day were a lot like you and me. They wanted to follow Jesus. They just happened to have a lot of luggage that they were trying to carry down the road with them. I'll be the first to tell you I have a tendency to overpack. And today I was reminded about that as I'm up in my deer stand this morning. And realizing I did not need at least half of the things that I brought up into that tree with me. It's before the sun is up. So you're out there and I'm I'm climbing up into this tree up this tall skinny ladder. And I've got my gun and my seat cushion and a backpack that's just crammed full of stuff. I probably looked like a bear who was going into hibernation up there. I just was carrying all this stuff with me. And I imagine Jesus On the crowd that day saying to the people who are trying to follow along, he's saying, why are you bringing all of that stuff? 
And I believe that's the same question that he would ask us today. The missionary Jim Elliott, who lost his life in the 1950s in the jungles of Ecuador, once wrote this statement in his journal. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And that is really the math that makes sense. By giving up what you cannot keep and gaining what you cannot lose. By trusting in Jesus above every other allegiance in your life and following after him one day at a time. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, your invitation to follow you is so gracious. We thank, Lord, of other words that you said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. It's a gracious invitation and yet so direct as we see here today. On our own, Lord, we know that we struggle under the weight of our other affections. And so today, Lord, we ask that you would help us to cast those things aside and follow wholeheartedly after you. And if there's any of us here today, Lord, who have not yet made that commitment to follow you, I pray that today would be the day that we would count the cost and we would get on the road with you. And for all of us, Lord, who desire to follow you, would you help us to finish what we have started? For your glory, in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.